The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. It's been a whirlwind week of farm-related events here in California. First, the good news. The March snowpack got off to a great start in the Sierra. That's helping out water supplies for the farms and cities of the Golden State this summer. And then there's the rather nervous news. The imposition of steel and aluminum tariffs by the Trump administration. It just might cause some serious blowback to California farm sales this year. Also, great concern over the lack of progress on NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, and the lack of an immigration solution from Washington to help ensure a very needed supply of farm labor for California. Also, we have tips for battling powdery mildew on this year's wine grape crop. It's all coming up on this edition of the KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. When Frank Gerke, who's chief of the California Cooperative Snow Surveys Program for the Department of Water Resources, tromped up to the snow back on March 1st, he didn't find very much, about 7% of average as far as snow water equivalent. Well, he decided to make another trip earlier this week on Monday after the weekend storms, and what he found was very encouraging. Uh, last week, we measured a depth of 13 inches, water content 1.7, representing 7% of its average. Today, we measured a depth 41.1, water content 9.4, 39% of its long-term average. So a very robust storm that we had starting late Wednesday and continuing even a little bit up here on into uh, Sunday. And fairly uniform accumulations of somewhere between 8 to 10 inches of snow water equivalent uh, pretty much throughout the range. And that is a huge boost to what we were, what we had been seeing back uh, last week before the storms hit. And Garricky says he's more optimistic for the week ahead as far as weather goes. Another encouraging feature, of course, is that we've got some more storm activity forecasted uh, this coming weekend. Don't know how how well of a producer that's going to be, but still a promising sign to get us kind of in, you know, shouting range of a of, of decent uh, water year. Of course, the weather is changing. Rain becomes more commonplace than snow in the Sierra as spring approaches. And Gerke says that lessens the chance of reservoirs having to release water this month for future flood control reasons. The reservoirs are above average. And what's uh, a good feature of this of future storms, even if they don't produce a lot of snowpack, we're getting out of that flood control mode where reservoirs have to release to maintain that flood control space. But as you move move through March, that flood control requirement shrinks. So even if it's a precipitation event, they'll be able to capture that water in, for a next uh, spring and summer. In addition to the manual surveys conducted at Phillips, the DWR also logs electronic readings from 103 stations scattered throughout the Sierra. The electronic measurements again indicate that the snow water equivalent of the northern Sierra snowpack is about 7.4 inches, 30 percent of the multi-decade average for today's date. The central and southern Sierra readings are 11.5%, which is 43% of average, and 8.7 inches respectively. But despite all the electronics in the Sierra, Gerke will tromp up to the snow on Highway 50 again in the first week of April to take the final reading of the season. 
A study conducted by several branches of the University of California and published in the February issue of the scientific publication Agronomy concludes that climate change will adversely affect crop production in California by mid-century. Yields of some crops could drop by as much as 40%. Highlighted in the article is the dramatic change in areas of California that can grow fruit and nut trees by the end of the century due to the expected drop in chill hours. Chill hours are those that occur during late fall and early winter that are between 32 and 45 degrees. The study says that around the year 1950, growers in the Central Valley could rely on having between 700 and 1200 chilling hours depending on the location of their orchard in the valley. Winter chill conditions for cultivars requiring just 200 chill hours, and that includes almonds, fig, olive, persimmon, and pomegranate, are unlikely to become critical by the end of the 21st century. But for chilling requirements of 500 hours, like chestnuts, pecans, and quince, about 78% of the Central Valley will be suitable for production by the end of the 21st century. And for those cultivars that require more than 700 chill hours, apricots, kiwifruit, peach, nectarine, plum, and walnut, only 23 to 46% of the valley will remain suitable and only 10% will remain viable by the year 2080. Only 4% of the area of the Central Valley was suitable in the year 2000 for species such as apples, cherries, and pears, and those have chill hour requirements of more than 1,000 hours. However, virtually no areas will remain suitable by 2041 under any of the study's emissions scenario to grow apples, cherries, and pears. Among the most climate-sensitive trees and vines, walnuts require the highest number of chill hours, implying a future decline in walnut acreage within the valley. Currently, walnuts rank ninth among California's top ag commodities at $976 million. Just five years ago, walnuts were the sixth largest crop in California, with production valued at $1.8 billion. Walnuts are still a major commodity in San Joaquin, Butte, Tulare, Stanislaw, and Glen Counties, according to CDFA statistics. Compared to 2017, what can farmers expect in 2018 as far as income is concerned? We are forecasting farm income to decline. USDA analyst Carrie Litkowski, we uh, talked to her at the Ag Department's Outlook Forum a few days ago. She had a lot of numbers to give us, but here's the gist of the uh, whole thing. Net cash farm income is forecast to be down about 5% while net farm income, a broader measure of income, which includes non-cash items as well as cash items, is expected to decline almost 7%. Net cash income at the projected $92 billion would be the lowest in nine years. The net farm income figure, the lowest in a dozen years. So why another downturn in farm earnings? It's not really one particular thing. It's a combination. We're seeing declines in both livestock or forecasting declines in both livestock and crop cash receipts, but they're pretty minor or modest declines of about a percent or less. And we're also seeing uh, or expecting to see a drop in federal government direct payments to farmers in 2018, and then a modest increase in production expenses or the costs that farmers are facing to produce these agricultural commodities. Okay, but if you had to point out the biggest factor in in bringing net incomes down, the biggest one, what do you think that that would be? Do you have one at the top of the list? It would be the 1% increase in production expenses. 1% is not a whole lot, but it is $3.5 billion. 
and it's a reversal of the last couple of years when total farm production costs actually went down. And it looks right now like there's not going to be a lot of help in making up those cost increases from higher commodity prices. USDA analysts here at the forum uh, expecting small increases maybe in the farm price for 2018 corn and wheat, lower prices for many other crops, and definitely lower prices for beef cattle, hogs, poultry, and milk. So once again, at this time, for farm income, it looks like... Kind of a shift down. But Litowski says don't set her income forecast in stone. Uh, forecasting incomes and prices at this time of year, very tricky business. This early in the year, our forecast is largely looking at trends and expecting normal conditions because, you know, a lot of, some of the crops haven't even been planted yet. So anything could happen probably will before harvest time. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Well, Donald Trump did what he said he was going to do, impose steel and aluminum tariffs on much of the world. A temporary exception, though, for Canada and Mexico, but it is temporary. And usually in tariffs, well... Agriculture tends to lose, especially California agriculture, and this would be no different. Food frequently bears a steeper retaliatory penalty in trade wars. No state has more at stake than California. It leads the country in agricultural revenue. Growers in California earned about $21 billion in trade. That amounts to about 44% of their total revenue in 2016. And if there are retaliatory measures against California agriculture... It could be a very expensive year for California's farmers. And to top that, also in the news this past week, a new version of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was unveiled down in Chile. The United States not a member, but several countries are, including Canada, Mexico, New Zealand, Australia. And now China is thinking about joining that as well. And uh, the first result of that will be beef tariffs going to Japan from the United States, but no tariffs on beef that come from Australia or New Zealand, for example. Well, there's a lot on the plate that California farmers are trying to get across to the federal government. Representing the California Farm Bureau Federation at the federal level is Josh Rolfe. He's the federal policy manager for the California Farm Bureau Federation. And Josh, uh, there are no winners when it comes to tariffs, are there? No, there, there really aren't. I think we've learned these lessons over time and... Uh, time and again, it backfires. It backfired for Bush back in 2002 and 2003 when he tried to do the exact same thing. So you would think that uh, this administration wouldn't go along in that same course. But unfortunately, he's done that. And uh, the only good news, if there is any, is that Canada and Mexico won't be part of the tariff. But instead, we'll have the rest of the world uh, potentially retaliating against us. And like you mentioned, ag is always uh, front and center. For us, farming in, in the United States is is not the big uh, uh, revenue maker when you compare it to Silicon Valley and Hollywood and manufacturing, textiles, and all that. But um, when you look at other countries, it can make up a huge percentage of their GDP and and so the first thing they want to do when they retaliate is to protect their farmers. And uh, what that ends up doing is is really kicking us in the shins. 
California's export markets, the number one is uh, the European Union, and our top exports to them include almonds, wine, and walnuts. China's number three. They like our pistachios, almonds, and dairy products. Japan is number four, almonds, rice, and hay. And the list goes on. Korea likes oranges. India likes cotton. And a lot more. And that means that California's agricultural exports are going to be stuck at home for the time being. And what does that mean to California's farmers? Yeah, go down the list. Uh, Depending on the country, they all like different things that we produce. And when you produce 400 commodities, uh, you're bound to have, and when we're exporting 44% of what we produce, um, this is going to do some really significant damage. Um, we're, we're coming fresh off of the Mexican tariff that was imposed about uh, seven, eight years ago, and uh, and they went after the whole list of products, um, and, and it did a lot of damage there to our market. Uh, we had growers that were still selling at a loss to Mexico just to keep their market share and keep their relationships with their with their uh, buyers over on the other on the across the border, um, but you don't don't always have that luxury, especially in light of uh, 11 countries jumping into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now that that's finalized, and this world is becoming increasingly more competitive from a free market perspective. So yeah, California farmers are the ones first to get hurt. What is the California Farm Bureau Federation saying to the representatives in Washington about the tariffs? Well, I'm in Washington now and trying to send a a very strong message opposed to this. We're hopeful that Congress can somehow step in. But unfortunately, the way that this all works is the administration has the upper hand and whatever they say goes. And so... Maybe there's a creative option that Congress can do to slow this down or stop it. Um, But talking to the administration feels a little challenging, uh, especially in light of Gary Cohn, the national economic advisor, stepping down over this issue. That doesn't leave a lot of hope for us that we can convince the administration at this point. So who are the friends of California agriculture in the White House these days? We do have a number of friends in the White House. Uh, I would point to one person in particular in the National Economic Council office, uh, Ray Starling. He's the first agricultural advisor in the White House in in a long time. Uh, The Obama administration didn't have have one in the White House. And, uh, uh, And this guy, he's a former chief of staff of a of a North Carolina senator. He's been to California. We've taken, taken him around. Uh, he's actually there again, here again in California uh, just this week. He, he has a, a really good footing, but unfortunately, you know, in this White House, it's, it's hard to know who's actually making the calls. So um, there are certainly people, and even Secretary Purdue, I got to add him next because USDA secretary is sure uh, a proponent of trade, understands it, uh, was instrumental in convincing the president not to sign uh, the, the uh, not to get us out of NAFTA last year. So I haven't talked to their office yet at USDA about this, but uh, that's on my list. Uh, so, you know, we, we have a few 
a few friends, but some foes as well in the administration. Well, that brings up the topic of NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, and California farmers still very worried. There has been no resolution on that. Talks are ongoing, and with upcoming elections, those talks may be delayed. And uh, what are you saying to the representatives there about NAFTA? There, there are things that can be fixed in NAFTA, but overall, we want finality because it's this uncertainty, not knowing whether the market is still going to be available tomorrow. I mean, we, we don't know what the president's going to do because he, as we've seen, this steel tariff announcement came on, uh, what, Thursday or Friday of last week, and now it's the reality. So things could move very quickly on NAFTA uh, to the detriment of our farmers if we're not careful. So we are very much involved in negotiations, trying to make the case that we've got to preserve what's good, fix some of the sanitary, phytosanitary, more technical issues uh, that have been a barrier to trade to Mexico, uh, improve things for our dairymen that can uh, try to get some more uh, opportunities into Canada, um, uh, assist the fresh produce growers who have been concerned with some of the uh, some uh, uh, protectionist uh, language that had been floating around. Um, so there's things that can improve in NAFTA, but we've we, we've got to stay vigilant on that front as well. We're talking with Josh Rolfe. He's the federal policy manager for the California Farm Bureau Federation, hard at work in Washington with multiple tasks on his desk, including dealing with any retaliatory measures to the tariffs recently imposed by President Donald Trump. Also, the slow-going NAFTA, North America Free Trade Agreement talks. And while he's in Washington, he's also addressing other major issues of concern to California's farmers that have to do with farm labor, or the lack of it, as well as confusion about the waters of the United States rules. You mentioned USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue. He he said something very interesting when he was out here in California for the World Ag Expo. He told reporters... ICE are not after the people out here working on our farms. I know there's an anxiety there. The president made it very clear. He wants a criminal element of illegal aliens out of this country, and that's what ICE is doing. And yet uh, farm workers are being rounded up. Uh, 26 Kern County farm workers were detained for deportation proceedings as part of a mass sweep in, in late February across central and northern California. And uh, maybe he just didn't get the memo that ICE was going to come to California and take anyone they, they felt was needed to be deported. But this does not solve the problem of a lack of labor for California's farmers. And this is a big, big issue. And uh, I know that the House bill working its way around there in Washington wants to put a nationwide cap of 450,000 ag workers. And uh, your own president, Jamie Johansson, said California could use that all up in just one harvest season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, uh, this is when you go around the state, talk to farmers, this is the number one issue by far right now, next to water, of course. Um, but uh, labor, there is a huge um problem it's it's a crisis we have no problem calling it a crisis because it is anecdotal evidence uh even a survey we conducted uh and then you just from talking to growers you find that 
Uh, they're having a hard time attracting workers. They're having a hard time recruiting. They're not filling all the spots. They're letting some of their crop drop to the ground and, and they're plowing it over, over. So it's a it's a huge problem right now. And uh, we have a bill that is deeply insufficient coming out of the House right now. It's uh, authored by Chairman Goodlatte, who has worked in good faith with us uh, for, well, I should say we've worked in good faith with him since last summer when it was first introduced and uh, just have a, a new amendment that was released uh, this week that um, still shows that he is not inclined to address the fundamental problem, which is the existing workforce. You have to have a solution that deals with those who are currently here. And right now, there's not enough incentive built into the bill that would give a, a, a farm worker any interest in signing up for this new program. They have to, for one thing, uh, go back to their country of origin, which in most cases is Mexico. Um, there's nothing that addresses family members. And for those who've been in country for 10, 20 years, have kids in school, have, uh, you know, other things, uh, you know, they, they, they've lost that connection to their home country. There needs to be a bill that addresses that fact. So the Farm Bureau, we've been uh, on the Hill. We were just uh, here in D.C. last week doing something really unique by bringing workers together with the farmers uh, and putting them in the same room in the same meetings with Republicans, Democrats, and had, uh, I think, a lot of success in showing the problem that this this is a business problem. This is a, a worker problem. Without the workers, there is no business. Hardline immigration reformers want to move that House bill forward, but uh, so far it, it's getting waylaid by a lot of opposition coming from the California Farm Bureau and California's farmers. After all, California's agriculture economy is the largest in the country. It, it seems rather unlikely that any kind of immigration reform would get very far without first addressing the concerns of California growers. Yeah, and what we have going for us right now in a big, big way is Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy because he has said repeatedly and told Chairman Goodlatte this, that until there is a program for, for the workers that satisfies agriculture, uh, there will be no bill. So uh, Chairman Goodlatte, I think he wa he's retiring this year and wants E-Verify to be his legacy. Uh, you can't have E-Verify without uh, Ag Guest Worker Program as uh, Majority Leader McCarthy has repeatedly said, and so uh, I think that's the one thing holding this back. Well, let's tackle, uh, you mentioned water, let's tackle the waters of the United States rule that uh, Donald Trump, to the uh, excitement of many farmers, especially here in California back in February of 2017, uh, basically put a moratorium on enforcing that uh, very odd rule of uh, turning ponds and ditches into navigable waterways, according to the Army Corps of Engineers or whoever. Fortunately, that was uh, waylaid, or, or has it been? Because there seems to be a lot of confusion now about the waters of the United States rules. It, it, the, supposedly, there's a two-year moratorium, but now you have states like Washington, Oregon, and California trying to reinstate WOTUS. There is a lot of confusion out there, and it doesn't help that we have a state that wants to fight the president on every 
on every front. Lotus, from the rule that you mentioned that uh, was written by the last administration that would have made ditches, puddles, uh, navigable waterway, I mean, it basically would have converted 93% of California, both the, the water and the dry land, into a water of the United States. So in order to farm just about anywhere, you would have had to file a permit. And uh, the state of California right now would like to go back to that even though the, the rule has been rescinded. The problem is uh, is that the administration wasn't able to rescind it completely. It is rescinded. It's more like it's delayed for two years, and they need to come up with a substitute. And it's that substitute that is really tricky because you're dealing with Supreme Court precedent that was never written well. I mean, you have a justice who, you have the EPA who listened to a justice that was in a, a, a concurring opinion, wrote his own opinion that said that if you could, if any of your listeners understand what a significant nexus to a waterway is, uh, because no one else has been able to figure it out, this is, this is something that needs to be defined, and it's got to be crystal clear what is a water of the United States. And until that time, we're going to be in this time of uncertainty because there really, there really, uh, there needs to be a clear, clear defi definition. So we're working on that. There is some appropriations language that we hope to get into this omnibus that's going to fund the government that they have to vote on here in the next couple weeks. And uh, the language would would ensure that there is some more clarity, uh, or at least this fiscal year. So um, that is something we are trying to address at Farm Bureau. In the meantime, are there still farmers being cited for WOTUS violations? Fortunately, none that I have heard of. There was a period of time over the last few years, and it was getting worse, that we were starting to hear of more activist Army Corps of Engineers where some of their uh, field uh, members were going out and, and doing some really uh, questionable tactics using uh, not just citations but they were starting to to issue letters of interest or lois and they were asking farmers to to basically tell explain how they were not violating waters of the u.s and then using their answer to incriminate them we're not seeing any of that right now we've seen a lot of changes at the army corps of engineers office which is a which is a breath of relief for us we're, we're in a good spot right now, but like you said, there is that uncertainty, and that's why we need the administration to act soon, and we're working with them on that, on language. We have attorneys at the Farm Bureau that are uh, instrumental in trying to get a, a workable definition through, but there's going to be a lot of pushback. It's It's got to be done right. He's in Washington juggling chainsaws, issues of tariff, immigration, WOTUS, and much more. The federal policy manager for the California Farm Bureau Federation, Josh Rolf. Josh, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's not often you get to hear a pop song from Guatemala, but here goes. Manuel Turizo with uh, one of the top song hits in Guatemala. There are some American singers who uh, make the charts in Guatemala, Justin Bieber's for one, but there's something else from America that people in Guatemala like a lot, and that 
is U.S. food. Boy, do they love U.S. products. And people say that. They say it at the supermarkets. They've said it at the distribution hubs we've been at about the quality and strong food safety reputation that the U.S. carries. And they said it recently to the U.S. Undersecretary of Agriculture for Trade, Ted McKinney, on his just-concluded trade mission to Guatemala. Talking to reporters by phone from there, McKinney said on the mission there were representatives from 34 ag business and trade groups, plus officials from seven state ag departments, and he said there were about 450 business meetings made during this trip. These were not just, hi, how are you, nice to meet you. I mean, they were really, really doing business, and some contracts were written, and that's what we one. The current projections is that business would total nearly 30 million. Which would be the second largest yield from a trade mission ever. McKinney said he's excited about the future opportunities to sell products in that part of Central America. I am equally as enthused about the opportunity for products from this region to come to the U.S., notably in off-seasons. He said it's important that trade be both ways. And on the subject of trade with the Northern Triangle of Central America there? goes pretty well between this region and the U.S. But there is one problem that U.S. exporters have had with Guatemala. What I'll call paperwork and holdups at the port. So we had very successful meetings with four different cabinet-level positions. Plus discussions with the president of Guatemala, Jimmy Morales. It was warm, it was uh, direct, it was firm both ways, but uh, always with the promise of advancing our cause because though there are things that need to be fixed here, just as there are at our own ports, we both agree we have got to keep this wonderful relationship going. The U.S. and Guatemala are members of CAFTA, Central American Free Trade Agreement. McKinney said of that agreement... It's been a good one and we've got to keep it going. And he says he knows of no plans at this time to pull out of it or renegotiate it. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear. Superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. Bud breaks approaching for many of the wine grape vineyards of northern and central California. But what should wine grape growers be looking for this time of year? Well, the folks at the University of California Integrated Pest Management Department have a lot of good tips, including monitoring for ants, mealybugs, spider mites, cutworms, thrips, leaf rollers, and to monitor leaf wetness for signs of powdery mildew. Well, what are some good preventative measures to stop powdery mildew on wine grapes before that problem gets out of hand? We're talking with Paul Walgenbach. Paul is the technical services representative for Bear Crop Science in our area. And Paul, there's a lot of great products to stave off powdery mildew that are produced by Bear Crop Science, including the Luna line of fungicides such as Luna Experience and Luna Sensation. Tell us about those. Thanks, Fred. Uh, first, what I'd like to do is encourage growers to look at the UC guidelines with respect to controlling powdery mildew from bud break to bloom. There are many products outside of synthetic chemistry that you can get you there during that pre-bloom time. And it's probably best to wait till bloom time to begin to employ your synthetic chemistry because that's when the powdery mildew is really going to come on and then you have a better chance of reducing the potential for resistance by restricting the use of your synthetic chemistry from bloom time through verasion. 
And when it comes to controlling powdery mildew, preventative measures are very important, and that's where Luna comes in, doesn't it? It certainly does, and we have uh, two products in the Luna category. Uh, we've got Luna Experience and Luna Sensation. Luna Sensation is registered in grapes for the very first time in 2018. And one of the things that makes these products, uh, what drives these products is fluopyram. Fluopyram is a group seven fungicide, and there are a number of those around, but what makes fluopyram different from all the others, although it has the same mode of action as the other group seven, it's a different type of chemistry, and it has a broader spectrum of activity, and is more systemic in the plant, meaning when you apply it to the plant, it moves upward, and that's the base for both Luna Experience and Luna Sensation. Uh, they have similarities and they have differences. First of all, Luna Experience and has two modes of action, has tebiconazole, that's a group three fungicide. And there are a lot of fungicides in that group three uh, that have been used in grapes for many years and they're very, found, very um, uh, fine powdery mildew products. With Luna Sensation, we have a different partner in there. We also have the fluopyrum, of course, but we have a product in there called trifloxystrobin. This is the active ingredient in Flint, which is a standalone product for grapes and a number of other crops. Now, the other thing about both products is they have relatively broad labels so that you can use them not only in wine grapes, but if you have other permanent crops, they have utility there as well. Here are some of the similarities of the products. Uh, first of all, both Luna Experience and Luna Sensation are suspension concentrate formulations. They're kind of like um, uh, flowables. That's how they behave. They're each packaged in one quartz, uh, which is, makes them easy to use. They both have a PHI of, um, of seven to 14 days, which is more than adequate. And they have uh, restricted entry intervals of 12 hours. The other thing that they both have is overlapping rates of application. Uh, Luna Experience goes from 6 to 8.6 and Luna Sensation from 4 to 7.6. So if you have relatively normal conditions, whatever normal may be for you, a good rate for both of these things would be 6.4 ounces per acre at bloom time. Uh, that will give you uh, one quart. Uh, per five acres. Now, in terms of the differences in the products, first, of course, Luna Experience has uh, modes of action of seven and three. And the one caveat in terms of the restricted entry level, interval is that if you are going to be conducting operations in a vineyard where you're handling the vines, then the REI moves from 12 hours to five days. This is something that's not encountered particularly often. With Luna Sensation, that REI is 12 days no matter what you're doing. Uh, the other thing is that Luna Experience is becoming the product of choice for bloom time applications in wine grapes. That is because it not only has great powdery mildew activity, but it also has great activity on bunch rot or botrytis. And that stuff begins to uh, start in the cipient infection and bloom time so you can reduce the potential for bunch rot and get your grape crop off to a great start in terms of disease control with both powdery mildew and botrytis with a bloom time application. And although I did mention 6.4 ounces is a great rate, uh, probably even a better one to really help guarantee that powdery mildew could program 
and even do a better job in Botrytis is to start off with 8.6 ounces of Luna experience. Now, if you wanted a different Luna product for various reasons in terms of um, uh, your resistance management program, you may go with Luna Sensation. And again, that higher rate at bloom time is really the, the best that you can do. These products, again, they're similar, but they have some differences. And one of the reasons that we have mixes of these products is that the Luna portion, the fluopyram, uh, has such great disease control and systemic activity, while the tibiconazole in Luna's experience and the trifloxystrobin in Luna sensation give us an element of resistance management. What are the application intervals for Luna products? It all depends upon the level of disease control. With that lower rate of, of uh, 6 to 6.4 ounces of Luna experience, you're going to get 14 days. Uh, you have a great chance of getting 21 days with the higher rate. Uh, it's similar with Luna Sensation. The 4-ounce rate will get you about 14 days of uh, residual activity. The higher rate of 7.6 ounces will get you 21 days of activity. Your coverage area as a technical service representative for Bear Crop Science includes the Sacramento Valley, the, the North Coast, and the Northern San Joaquin Valley. What are the fungal diseases that most affect wine grapes in that region? Well, it's really the, um, uh, the two big ones are, are powdery mildew, and uh, in botrytis, those uh, probably drive the great proportion of, of fungicide applications in, in this part of the world. You know, other things can come in during the season, and the great broad spectrum activity of both these two products can help mitigate uh, the problems that they can cause in your wine grapes. But again, it is powdery mildew and botrytis really drives the system here. One big issue for a lot of wine grape growers is resistance management, mixing mm -hmm. up the chemical applications so the disease does not become immune to one versus another. That's correct. Uh, that is a big issue since we have so many applications for powdery mildew. That's why it's a great idea to try and avoid synthetic chemistry, if you can, pr from bud break up until bloom. Uh, the other thing you can do is you can employ a number of these products that have uh, mixed modes of action. Uh, you can also monitor the various modes of action that you are employing throughout the season so that you're not putting on uh, um, the same mode of action too often. And to do that, you really have to look at the products. You may uh, shift from one product to another, uh, but if it's got the same mode of action, even though it has different chemistry, uh, you are not employing resistance management. There are at least six or eight different modes of action that you can employ um, with synthetic chemistry as you move through the season. Uh, so if you monitor those carefully, uh, you can have a, a great, uh, what I would call an integrated powdery mildew program and really reduce the potential for any resistance. So what are the chemicals you would keep in your warehouse as a wine grape grower? Besides the Luna products that we have, Fred, uh, we've got three other products that have proved important in the wine grape industry. The first one of them is Flint. Flint's been around a long time but it was sold as a, uh, a, a water dispersible granule. And what we have done is we have changed the formulation and now we have what we call a suspension concentrate, the same sort of formulation that the Luna products have. And we've changed the rate a little bit, making it easier to use for growers. Liquids are a little easier to use than these water dispersible granules. So the same flint that growers have been using for years 
uh, can still be employed, only this time it's a, um, uh, a liquid formulation rather than a granule formulation. Another product that we have that has been a long time uh, member of our portfolio is Scala. Uh, Scala is specifically a bunch rot material, uh, not a powdery mildew material. It is has excellent activity on uh, botrytis, and it's a different mode of action than most other uh, chemistries. Uh, it is a group nine material, and there's only one other group nine material available to wine grape growers, so it's a great choice for uh, for bunch rot. And lastly, we have a biological called Serenade. It's been around for quite some time. Its use is restricted primarily to uh, organic grapes, but it does have some utility in conventional wine grapes, particularly on the North Coast, uh, as you're getting close to harvest and you may be worried about uh, uh, excessive residues from chemicals that you've already applied, there can be employed later in the season for control of bunch rot. It's organic and exempt from tolerance, so there's no residues involved. And it's uh, got a component in it that can help dry up existing infections of bunch rot. So if you've got some bunch rot in your field that's already going, you need to control it, this would be a good addition to the tank mix so you can dry up uh, the existing infection. Things are getting busy out in the vineyards now for getting those grapes off to a great start. And Luna should be part of your arsenal from bloom to harvest. Luna fungicide protects wine grapes throughout the growing season, improving plant health for beautiful crops and abundant grape harvests season after season. We've been talking with Paul Walgenbach. He is a technical service representative for bear crop science here in northern california paul thanks for a few minutes of your time you're very welcome thanks for listening to the kste farm hour heard every sunday from noon until 1 p.m pacific time and available anytime as a podcast download it at kste.com